Let's uh, open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get uh, get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here tonight with the body of Christ, and thank you that um, we have a personal copy of your word to hold in our hands or in our phones, wherever we have it. Lord, we just thank you for it, and that it's so accessible to us today. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you would give us wisdom as we uh, read through these uh, two chapters, 31 and 32, and spend most of our time at 32. And Lord, just prepare our hearts for all that you're going to teach us tonight. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, uh, like I said, we're mainly going to be in <coughs> chapter 32, but I'm going to go ahead and read through chapter uh, 31. I know it's a little warm in here. It's cooling down, so just be patient with the air AC. <coughs> so uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a strange reward for obedience. Last week we talked about the joy of obedience. And you would think if you obeyed God that everything would be great, (laughs) right? Well, we're going to find out sometimes it's not great. So um, if you'll follow along in your Bibles, we'll go ahead and read through this. In 31, basically, it talks about Hezekiah reorganizing the priests as he restored the the worship in the temple and everything. So we'll read through that, and then we'll go into chapter 32. Now, when all this was finished, verse 1 chapter 31 of Second Chronicles. All Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judea, or throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel returned to their cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests of the Levites those who took care of the temple, um, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites for the burnt offerings and the peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. <clears throat> the contribution of the king from his own possession was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening and the burnt offerings for the Sabbath and the new moons and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded... <clears throat> The, the people who lived in Jerusalem, to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the command <coughs> was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance uh, first fruits of, of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly tithes of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps. In the third month they began to pile up heaps and finish them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps and blessed the Lord and his people Israel and Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps And Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough to have plenty left for the Lord (coughs) has blessed his people so that we may have a large amount left. Then Hezekiah commanded 
them to prepare the chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them, and they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and dedicated things. And the chief officer in charge of them was uh, uh, Conaniah, the Levite, and uh, Shimei, his brother, as a second, and Jehiel, Azariah, Nathan, Ashael, Jeremoth, Josabad, Eliel, Ishmachiah, Mahath, and Benaniah were overseers <coughs> assisting Conaniah and Shemai, his brother, by the appointment of Hezekiah, the king, and Azariah, the chief officer of the house of God. And Kor, the son of Imnah, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the free will offerings to God to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. Eden, Minanam, Jeshua, Shema, uh, Shemaiah, Amariah, and, and Shechaniah were faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priests to distribute the portions to their brothers, young and old alike, by divisions, except those enrolled by genealogy, males from three years old and upward, all who entered the house of the Lord as the duty of each day required for their service according to their offices offices by their division. So they're very organized, you can tell. The enrollment of the priests was according to their father's houses. That of the Levites from 20 years old and upward was according to their officers by divisions. And they were enrolled with all of their uh, children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. Remember last week, some of them weren't. They didn't prepare themselves properly for, for the time of worship, and, and uh, King Hezekiah had to kind of intervene for them. Verse 19, And for the sons of Aaron the priests, who were in the fields of common land belonging to their cities, there were men in the several cities who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to everyone among the Levites who was enrolled. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did, this is important, what was good and upright and faithful before the Lord his God. And every good work that he undertook in the service of the house of the Lord and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and what? And he prospered. Okay, and we talked about the joy of obedience uh, last uh, week, and we saw how Hezekiah was faithful to this task. Well, here we come in verse chapter 32. It says, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, in other words, he was obedient, he did everything God commanded him to do, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. Now, this is the last thing you think would happen to this country. It'd be like if all of a sudden there was a big revival in our country and everybody returned to the Lord and well, we saw people getting saved, government saved, everybody saved. And then all of a sudden we're invaded by some foreign country and you know, we'd think, wait a minute, it's not supposed to happen this way. Um, and this king, Sennacherib, uh, came from Assyria and invaded Israel and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. So Hezekiah did such a good job, right, at allowing the people to prosper and, and doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so God blessed their country that these people wanted a piece of it. <laughs> without going through all the hard work. And so they wanted it for themselves. Verse, uh, verse 2, And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib 
had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. Verse 4, a great many people were gathered and they stopped all of the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find so much water? He set to work resolutely and he built up all of the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it for defense. And outside he built another wall and he strengthened uh, the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields of, uh, shields of uh, in, in, in abundance. Verse 6, And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than him. With him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to, and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Verse 9, look at this. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, so he's getting everybody out of the way, so he has this clear shot um, at Hezekiah, sent his servants to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting? Or in what are you trusting? Um, that you endure the siege in Jerusalem. Is not Hezekiah misleading you? That he may give you over to die by famine and thirst? When he tells you the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship? And on it you shall burn your sacrifices. Verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? So he was very successful in his conquer, conquering these people so far. Who among all the gods of the nations that my father devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from the hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. You can see he's taunting them. Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my father's. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? What a bold statement, right? Prideful, arrogant king. Verse 16, And his servants said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and to terrify them in order that they might take the city. 
And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. They didn't understand the difference between them. Verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, remember they were contemporaries, the son of Amos prayed because of this and cried to heaven. So they did the right thing again, verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all of the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And uh, uh, it tells us that 185,000 soldiers died that night in one night. And it just took one angel. <laughs> so that speaks somewhat of, of the angels of the Lord. They're, they're pretty hefty guys. Um, and it says he returned with shame. And when he had come to his house of his God, look at what happens to him. Some of his own sons struck him down there with their sword. Verse 22, so the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all of his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. In other words, they were completely protected. And many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. Verse 24, and in those days Hezekiah became sick. And was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries of silver, for gold, for precious stones, spices, shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses, also for the yield of grain, wine, oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. So obviously a very wealthy nation and king. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. Verse 30, this same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Um, a lot of times we wrestle with the problem of uh, good things happening uh, or bad things happening to good people. You've heard that book, uh, Rabbi Kushner, Rabbi in New York, wrote um, when bad things happen to good people. 
And the whole premise of the book, obviously, is wrong from a biblical perspective because there are no good people, okay? Um, so we don't deserve anything good. But, uh, you know, he had lost his son, and he is a religious leader. He was trying to deal with that, and it, it kind of came to a logical conclusion of the flesh um, that basically his answer to the whole book, if you read the book, when bad things happen to good people, the answer was basically that God is basically good, but he's not quite strong enough um, to eradicate suffering. That's what he believed. That's what he landed on. We have basically a good God, but he, he just can't deal with everything on his plate. And so a lot of things slip under the, the radar, uh, which is, uh, that doesn't inspire me to trust in that kind of God, frankly. <laughs> okay. Um, because it's merely a philosophical answer. It's, um, it's, it's important when you dial back from that and you realize, you know what? Uh, okay, that guy went through a hard time, but you know, we all do. And, and we all face repeated trials probably throughout our lives. And sometimes you wonder, if you're normal, why is this happening to me? <laughs> I'm trying to do what's right. And, you know, you could, you could understand that if, if you want to grow in your Christian faith, you understand and you submit to God's perspective on, on why bad things happen to good people. But for the most part, you have to understand that, you know what, God is in control of all this. And this is what we're going to look at tonight. But you look at verse 30, uh, in chapter 31, there are 20 and 21, that Hezekiah did what was good, what was right, and what was true before the Lord his God. And every work that he began in the service of the Lord, and the law and the commandments, seeking his Lord, he did with all his heart, and he prospered. And you would expect the next verse to read, after these acts of faithfulness, Hezekiah was blessed and lived a long, happy, trouble-free life. I mean, that's, that's the message we want to read, but that's not what we, we read. In verse 1, it says, after these, these things, um, basically this king, this vicious king, came and invaded their country. And he besieged their fortified cities. And what he was trying to do was trying to just wear them out. Just starve them to death. I mean, that's a strange reward for Hezekiah being such a faithful and such an obedient king. I mean, why didn't God intervene to prevent this good king and his people from going through this difficult trial? And you say, well, he did. But, well, that's true. But why did they even have to embrace the trial in the first place? Where was God in all this? And the fact of the answer is, or the, the answer to that question basically is, is in verse 21, where it records how the angel of the Lord destroyed the Assyrian army so they couldn't conquer Jerusalem. And all those accounts are in 2 Kings 18. Um, and Isaiah 37 reports that 185,000 soldiers, like I said, more than, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big group of people, they were all wiped out in one night. Um, and to do the job, the Lord didn't even have to leave, leave his throne. Think about it. Um, he didn't have to muster together 100,000 <laughs> angels to take on 185 humans. No, he didn't do that. He called one angel and he said, here, go take care of, of this king's army. Wipe him out. And he did. Uh, it's kind of like flicking this king Sennacherib off his forearm like, a, like he was a little gnat or a flea. And uh, the question, the answer to the question, where was God when Sennacherib invaded Judah? Okay, where was he? The answer is obviously God was sovereignly sitting upon his throne, observing every move of this prideful king. 
And you, you say, well, why didn't God send his angels to, to polish off Sennacherib's army before it caused all the problems for Hezekiah and the people there? Why didn't he do that? Um, if God could do it later, you could say, well, he could surely do it before this all happened. Why wouldn't he have done it sooner and spared them? They were obedient people. Why did God allow the good king Hezekiah to really experience all this trauma? I mean, war's not fun. Um, and this, this invasion by King Sennacherib was, was traumatic on these people. And you have to personalize that and say, well, why does God allow us to go through trials? And I want to give you four reasons tonight. First of all, and it's listed there, God allows trials to motivate us to strengthen our defenses against evil. Uh, God allows trials to motivate us to strengthen our defenses against evil. We see that basically there in the first six verses of 2 Chronicles 32. When Hezekiah saw what was coming, what did he do? Did he run in fear? Did he cower? No, he, he, he rallied his people. You could see he was gifted with the gift of administration. You know, he was able to get these people together, and he did everything. He got his people prepared for the trial that was coming. He didn't impose them with a bunch of fear. He didn't act in an unkingly way or anything like that, like a coward. No, he took it on. Um, they, caught, they cut off, it tells us, and they rerouted the water supply from this, the spring of Gihon outside the city wall. And you say, well, why was that important? You know, when we were over in Israel, we actually... I did, and Mika wouldn't go through, but there's a tunnel there called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's still there today. They've, they've dug it up, and, and you can walk through it. And it's amazing. I mean, you get down there, and there's a plaque halfway through. And, and it, des it, it's, it commemorates where the, the, they started at each end, and they had to dig through, through like 1,700 feet of, of limestone. And when they were about 10, five, 10 or five, 5 or 10 feet away from each other, they could hear the other guy's picking. And it's a miracle. They came right out, right where they perfectly matched up. And, and the reason they did that, the water tunnel, which they, Hezekiah built, that was, it was actually discovered by archaeologists back in the 1800s, 1880, I think it was. But it's an amazing engineering feat. And, you know, the whole king, Sennacherib, came up and he said, we're just going to cut off this city. Well, Hezekiah knew that they needed water. So he went out and he diverted one of the streams, one of the wells, and uh, basically he was able to take that water underground into the city without them even knowing it was there. Pretty amazing tactic of war. And so the workers, they also, besides that amazing feat, he also got all the, the broken walls put back together in time. And then he built another wall outside that wall and fortified it even more. And he built towers where they could throw spears and arrows, whatever they needed to do. And there's a couple lessons here of what he did. Um, and I think the first lesson is the time to get ready for trials is what? Before they hit. <laughs> right? Not after or not during. And so many times, you know, God gives us grace and then we're hit with a trial. And we should have been using the gracious times to prepare for the times of trial. Uh, Proverbs 24.10 says, If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. All right? 24.10. In other words, the day of distress reveals your strength. 
if you've been preparing for trials, there's a lot of people going through trials now, right, with the economy the way it is. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're living week to week and you, your credit cards are maxed out and stuff, you're going to be in a world of hurt as interest rates go up and, you know, jobs possibly go away. Okay, this is what will happen. And, and you know, so what do we want to do? We want to use the times of prosperity, prepare for the times where there's not prosperity. Um, you'd be better to use the, the, the present to prepare for the day of distress. You see that also in, in Proverbs chapter 1, verses uh, 24 to 29, same thing. Because you can count on it. The one thing you can count on is that they, there will be a Sennacherib in your, in your life sooner or later. Someone's going to come and invade your little peaceful space. And it's not going to be fun. And it's better to figure that out now while you are prospering and while you are in time of, of peace and things like that. Get ready for that time. What will my reaction be? How will I deal with it? Am I, am I, am I prepared for that? And, and what I mean by that is spiritually. If you're not sinking down roots with God now, you're not going to be able to stand against a storm that's coming. And that's, that's a very true statement. So the time to get ready for trials is before they hit, not after. Secondly, don't trust your preparations. <laughs> don't trust in your preparations. Trust who? Trust the Lord. Right? Uh, you know, there's a lot that can happen very quickly. We've seen it in the last year and a half to a country that's growing and thriving. Boy, everything's just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And you get certain individuals who have certain mindsets, they can turn everything around really quick. By one swoop of the pen, it seems. And so even though you have preparations and you have goods stored up or whatever, you don't want to just have your trust in those things because they can go away like that. Then what are you going to do? Um, Isaiah chapter 22, if you turn over there, Isaiah chapter 22, I just want to read verses 8 to 11, because it kind of gives us a little look into this. Isaiah chapter 22, remember, I, he's a contemporary here, spiritual advisor to the king. In verse 8 it says, He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the fortified, or the houses of, to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Talking about that tunnel that they built. But you did not look to him who did it. Now here he's talking about the people or see him who planned it long ago. And so apparently some in Judah, I don't think Hezekiah is, is, is King Hezekiah is included in this because it says he was faithful, but some in Judah were trusting in their water tunnel that they worked so hard for and all the fortifications that they worked for so hard for, they weren't trusting in the Lord. And it's very easy to do that when you, when you prepare for something, you know, uh, and, and you, you got all your preparation done and everything's good to go and, and you're just trusting in that preparation and all of a sudden, wow, something just wipes out the preparation. What are you going to do then? Um, I remember one time I was doing a, 
youth thing and I was speaking and and I had gotten to the church and studied really hard for this Wednesday night message, really excited about it stuff. And I got to the church and it was time for the youth group to start. I got my Bible and I'm looking for like my outline for my study. Like I had all my stuff in it and it was not there. And, uh, and I, at first I panicked. Why? Because I was trusting in my preparation. I was trusting that, I, yeah, okay, if I lose my place, I got to, But you know what? I mean, God was faithful. I mean, I missed a lot of points, but God was faithful in that. And I think he allowed me to say what I needed to say that night without saying more than I needed to say. And so preparation and planning are good, but you don't want to trust in those things. You want to have your trust in the Lord. That's always the danger. Um, we should always develop a, a daily habit of spending time with God and his word in prayer, fortifying our lives against the enemy. Even when we're not in the midst of spiritual warfare, or even in the midst when everything is going great. That should be just the normal part of our day. But so many times, I find that Christians, the moment, the, the times that they're really on their knees is when? When the whole thing, the wheels are falling off the cart, right? They're losing their job, their wife's leaving them, their kids are a wreck, and then finally they're going, oh, you know, I gotta find God. Well, yeah, it's a little too late then, pal. You know, you created a mess. Now, it's never too late to turn to God. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is it's going to be a lot harder to deal with those trials not having that solid relationship with the Lord. So the main goal of a daily time with God should be to, to walk in dependence upon him, not just sit back and go, oh, look how much I make and look how much I got in my IRA and all this stuff. I'm, I don't have to worry about any of this stuff because trials will come. And that should motivate us to strengthen our defenses, uh, putting on the full armor of God um, so that we're ready to stand the day of trouble. So that's the first reason that God allows trials to motivate us to strengthen our defenses against evil. Secondly, God allows trials, as he did with Hezekiah there, to increase our trust in him. And this kind of goes along with the last point, the, the last comments I just made, trials will either, listen, strengthen your faith or destroy it. That's what will happen. And I've seen it time and time again. People so-called come to Christ, they're all excited, and then what happens? A trial hits. Something happens in their life. And either that, that trial makes them stronger in their faith, they're more dependent on God, or you know what? They never had a faith and they just walk away from it. Inevitably, that's what happens. One of those two things. You'll never stay in the same place. Either you'll grow closer to God or further away. And it's clear that there's a battle of faith going on here. Um, Hezekiah called the people to trust in this, uh, trusting God in this crisis. That's what he says there in verses 7 and 8. Very clearly. And so he wants them to have their, their trust in the right place. And yet, on the other hand, you had Sennacherib, the king. What's he trying to do? He's trying to undermine, which the enemy always does, their trust in God and their trust in Hezekiah, God's leader. So, you know, Hezekiah is trying to warn the people. He's trying to encourage people. He's trying to get them to trust more fully in God through this crisis. And that his enemy... King Sennacherib is doing everything he can to undermine their trust in God and Hezekiah, their spiritual leader, their, their, their kingly leader. And so 
scripture is clear that our main need in a time of trial is to rely who? On, on God alone. That's the main need. And secondly, to, to resist the lies of the enemy. Because Satan's not stupid. You know, when you're going through a trial, it, it's Satan that's whispering in your eyes, why is this happening? Where's God? You know, boy, I'm trying to do everything right. I'm coming to church. I'm trying to do this. I'm even coming to Wednesday nights. And, and love with the trial after trial is, boy, I guess God's not pulling his end of the bargain. And you start listening to those lies, and pretty soon you're, you're believing those those lies. You know, the one thing I see here is a tie between, it's a good illustration between King Sennacherib and Satan himself. If you think about it, they're both what? They're both tyrants. Right? This king was used to getting whatever he wants. He just steamrolls over everybody. Wipes out nation after nation. Doesn't care who their god is, whatever. And he says so much. Alright? Satan does the same thing. Satan's a tyrant. And when you rebel against a tyrant, guess what? He visits you rather quickly. <laughs> They don't let this pass. And so King Sennacherib was trying to just get the people to, to resign to the fact that, hey, you know what, I'm going to take over, so just give up. And uh, when they didn't buy into that, he showed up. But God showed up as well. And, and a lot of times, uh, some new Christians get thrown by this. They put their trust in Christ. They begin to cast off Satan's tyranny in their life. They're living for the Lord. And then suddenly, what happens? You talk to them three months later and they're going, I don't know what's happening in my life. There's, there's more bad in my life now than there was before I even came to Christ. Right? Because the trials are just unleashed. And it doesn't seem right. What happened? It's easy. When you rebel against the tyrant, he visits you. Satan's not going to let you just live for the Lord. I mean, he's going to try to disqualify you. He's going to try to weigh you down with the temptations of this world. He's going to try to uh, cause you not to desire to live for the Lord. And when you face a trial, it's Satan who's whispering in your ear, you know what, if your God was so good and so powerful, why is this happening to you then? Tell me. I mean, you're actually doing the right thing, and God's allowing this to happen to you. Um, I wouldn't call this good. And then you go and you share it with the pastor, and the pastor says, well, you just need to trust in God. And you're like, come on, I am trusting in God. I'm trying to do the right thing. All right? We hear that all the time. But resisting Satan by trusting God is precisely what the Bible tells us we need to do. Look at, at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, look at, let's look at verses 6 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is kind of what the Bible tells us to do when we're facing trials. And this is what was happening to uh, the, the, the people that, that Peter was writing to here. All right? they, were, they were going through incredible trials in their Christian lives. And in verse 6, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So the one thing you need first and foremost when you're in, enduring a trial, when you're faced with a trial, is you need what? Humility. You don't need the pride and the arrogance that King Sennacherib had, like, oh, we got this, no problem. 
or even later when Hezekiah was filled with pride, at least he acknowledged it and put it behind him. We all have that temptation. He says, no, you have to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verses 7, casting all of your anxieties or your worries on him. Why do we worry? Why do we have anxieties? Anxieties are caused by things we cannot control. All right? When you go to the doctor and you get a report, and it's not the report you thought, what do you do? You start to worry. You're like, wow, I wonder how serious this is. Why? Because you can't control it. It is what it is. That's why a lot of times when I'm faced with trials, I just accept the worst possible scenario and then move on. (laughs) And then when it doesn't happen, you're kind of blessed. You know, and if it does happen, well, you expected it anyway. You know, and it takes away the worry. It takes away the anxiety. It's still there a little bit, but for the most part, it says cast all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, if you're facing a trial and something's come into your life, it would have been very easy for Hezekiah to raise his hand at God and say, how dare you allow this to happen to to me and my people? I've been doing everything that's right. Everything you commanded me to do, I did. And now you're letting this king come in and disrupt everything? No. Why? Because he was humble before his God. And he, I'm sure he was concerned, but he said, you know what? I'm sure God cares for us. He communicated just as much. And then he says in verse 8, be sober-minded. In other words, kind of be alert. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So this isn't a little pet that you bring home and pet on the on the main, you know, or in the in the in the uh, zoo, you know, we've all seen what happens. It's been in the news, right? Somebody gets a little too close to one of these lions or whatever, or falls in the pit. Well, it came over, right? They're mauled to death a lot of times. Um, you know, the, these animals are animals. They're going to do what an animal does. And so this it, Satan is described that way: an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And the Bible says, don't confront him. It doesn't say go out there and cast him out and bind him in Satan's name. It doesn't say that. It says what? Resist him. Resist him. A lot of times people say, oh, have you ever, have you ever encountered a, a demon-possessed person? What did you do? I said, to my knowledge, I've met some people that I probably could have been classified as demon-possessed. I don't know if they were or not. They were kind of crazy. But... I've never been confronted where I knew someone was demon-possessed. No, and I, I don't. I, I hope I never do. Not that I don't think God would have the power to, and the wisdom to give me the knowledge to do what I have to do in that situation. But at the same time, you know, I don't go looking for that kind of stuff. And I don't think Christians should. Because here it says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, you're not the only one. A lot of times when we're faced with something personally, what happens? We begin to believe we're, we're the only one that's going through this. You know, it's only me. It's just, boy, nobody else can understand. No, you're not the only one. There's been people before you. There's going to be people after you because trials are part of our life. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, is that our time or God's time? Who knows? The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen to this, will himself, 
very personal. He's not some god like Sennacherib was talking about. Oh, I've defeated all these gods. I mean, what are they? No, this, this god is a personal god because he's a real being. He himself will restore, he'll confirm, he'll strengthen, and he'll establish you. In other words, you don't have anything to worry about. God's in control. God will take care of you. And then it says there in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, what does trust mean? What does it mean to put your trust in God? What does it mean to be humble before an almighty God and be sober-minded and resist the enemy and all that? Well, first of all, trusting in God means submitting to his sovereignty over your trials. We're all going to have trials. And you know what? If you're, if you're a child of God, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you know you're saved... Nothing, nothing will come into your life. Nothing, unless God allows it. Nothing. Because God is sovereign over that. And we have to get that through our head. We have to understand that we have to submit to his sovereignty over our trials. Because when you're faced with a trial, basically you have two choices. Either God is sovereign over the trial... Or, he's on vacation. And somehow he slipped up. And one got by him. And now you're in a mess and it's God's fault. No. I think we all know, as Bible-believing Christians, either you have to submit to his sovereign hand, as First Peter pointed out, or you shake your fist at God and you sulk. And you say, it's not fair. How dare you allow this? How, how dare you treat me this way after all I've done for you? Because we begin to believe the lie of Satan. Hezekiah didn't do any of that. You notice what his response was back to Hezekiah. He didn't. Instead of complaining, instead of whining, instead of saying this isn't fair, what did he do? He, he, he rallied his people to what? To trust in God. Verse 7 and 8. That's kind of what he points out there. He says, be strong and courageous. I love that. You read through the book of Joshua. We read it all the time. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. That shows me that he's being realistic. You know, this wasn't some little king that, that you know, um, didn't have any um, army. No, this was a formidable force. But he said, no, nope, I'm not going to complain. You, you, put your, you put your trust in God. He'll take care of us. God will, will deal with it. So trusting in God means submitting to God's sovereignty over your trials. Secondly, trusting in God means acknowledging God as the source of your strength. This goes back even to our preparation, right? We have to believe that, that God is the source of our strength. Um, this is what he says there in, in, at the end of, of verse, uh, verse 8. Um, with him is the arm of flesh. In other words, yeah, he's got a lot of guys and he's a nasty king and everything. But with us, he's the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. The king was acknowledging, you know what? We don't even have to fight. A lot of times, the problem with believers is they're always wanting to fight. They, they, wanna, they want to, um, rather than embrace the trial, Right? We're too busy shaking our fist at God. How dare you let this happen? Or we're too busy trying to get out of the trial. God, just get me out of this. 
I'll do anything for you, God. And you know what? God's probably saying, nah, I don't think so. Because uh, you need some work done on you. Just like Paul, right? He was tormented, thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Lord, take it away. Take it. Nope, nope, nope. You're going to have to deal with it, Paul. You're going to have to live with this. There's some things that we have to live with. And we have to learn to trust God with that. Trusting God isn't passive. It's not some vague thing. It's, it's active. It's specific. It's putting our faith into action each and every day. I mean, let's say you have some overwhelming problem in your life. I mean, Sennacherib and his army were an overwhelming problem for Hezekiah. As a matter of fact, there's some artwork that they've discovered like uh, in ruins where they have artwork on a wall and they kind of chiseled it out and stuff. And it talks about, it's a story in these carvings of, the, of Sennacherib's siege of Lachish that he mentioned in verse 9. And how that actually played out. And it basically shows on this, this artwork, this relief artwork, the soldiers are, are battering down the walls with their huge war machines. And there's a number of prisoners are pictured as impaled on poles. They just impaled them right on the poles. Now, obviously, this would have happened in Lakeish over a period of time, and the, the artist just put it all up there as a giant uh, mural kind of a thing. And they also showed some of the prisoners being flayed alive, being skinned alive. So this guy was no little mealy <laughs> king. I mean, he was a nasty guy. He just inflicted pain on people just for the fun of it. And then it had a certain group of prisoners who were bowing uh, before Sennacherib. And it, it pictured that whole thing. I mean, you know, this is a king where if you're on his hit list, you had a problem. This wasn't a little problem. This was a big problem. And it's one thing to say that we trust in the Lord, but it's altogether a different thing to do it when guys like this come knocking on your door and say, you know what, I want your head on a platter. I mean, how do we get through those things? Well, you line up your problem against the living God, and every time you fear, you keep coming back to affirm your trust in God. God, no matter what happens, I'm still going to trust in you. You know, um, you think of all the things that are going on in the world today. I mean, I can't think of something more fearful, more horrible than someone like a gunman coming in and just starting shooting people in our church on a Sunday morning. What a horrible thought, right? It's happened. Innocent people have died as a result of it. Because some crazed maniac had an issue with somebody. And it's like, wow, if you were confronted with that, what would you do? How would you handle it? Would it be, I mean, a time of cowering fear? Or would you say, you know what? No, I, I, God, this is the time. This is the time. Um, we don't know how would we respond. We trust God and we pray that our, our faith, as we're now in this time of peace and, and we're growing in our relationship with the Lord, would, would bring us to a point where, you know what, we could stand up against something like that. And not, not for the purpose of being a hero, but 
to understand that, hey, you know what? God is sovereign over that. He's completely sovereign over that. Uh, look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Because this psalm, uh, I believe, may have been written because of this situation. This exact situation that we've reading about here in Second Chronicles. And it's um, a great affirmation of God as the source of our strength. Psalm 46, I'm sure we're familiar with it. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, right? A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Wow, that's a pretty big deal. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. I always joke with people in Redwood City, you know, one day we could wake up and be, have beachfront property here in California, you know, if God carries out his judgment the way he wants, who knows? You know, half of the state goes in the water, I don't know. Verse 3, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams, and this, this reminds me of that tunnel that Hezekiah built, right? There's a river that, whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. But verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, trusting in God means submitting to his sovereignty over your trials. It means acknowledging him as the source of your strength. But it also means, thirdly, trusting in God means casting your cares on him through prayer for his glory. Casting your cares on him through prayer for his glory. This is basically back to 2 Chronicles 32, verse 20. It says, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah, who is the spiritual counselor, leader there, the prophet, what'd they do? Plan for war. They did it. Nope. First thing they did, they prayed because of this and they cried out to heaven. That's where their strength was. They understood that. The other accounts, 2 Kings and Isaiah record how Hezekiah took uh, Sennacherib's threatening letter into the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord and prayed about it. I mean, that's how, that's how graphic of the description is. And the gist of his prayer wasn't, God, help us out of this trial so that we can be happy again. That's not what he was praying for. Rather, it was, Lord, deliver us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you and you alone, O Lord, are God. All right? It's for God's glory he wanted deliverance. It wasn't for our own. It wasn't for their own. And Sennacherib and his, his, his whole entourage in verse 19 there it says spoke of the god of jerusalem as one of the gods of the peoples of the earth the work of men's hands this was a faithless man who obviously just thought hey you know they got these little trinket idols like everybody else and their god's no different um, but what was first in hezekiah's mind not his protection not his safety but god's honor not just relief from his problems and that's one, the one thing that has really motivated us as a church, even through all this crazy you know, COVID stuff, 
I mean, early on, I just thought, you know what? It doesn't honor God if our church is closed, period. That's not honoring to God. And it's hard to understand why some churches are still closed and okay with it. I, I don't understand that at all. And so when we pray in time of tr trouble, whether it's for ourselves or whether it's even for others, make sure that when you're praying that it's God's glory that's the object of your prayer, not just your deliverance. You know, don't pray first, oh, Lord, get me out of this. <laughs> you know, I mean, he may, but then again, he may not. You know, we have that trial in our life for a reason. God saw fit to allow it. So there must be a purpose behind it. And I always tell people, you know, why, why fight against it? Just embrace it and go to God and ask him what, you, what he wants you to learn through this trial so you don't have to repeat, repeat the same trial again. You know, a lot of times, you know, especially in, in, in churches in general, people tend to pick up camp and move and, you know, they see grass greener in the other side of the street or down the road or whatever in another church and they, they think, wow, you know, I don't have to deal with these people here. Guess what? If you don't learn to deal with the people here, you're gonna, the same people are going to be at the, <laughs> the other church. And someone once told me there's a reason why the grass is greener. You get the illustration. Some muck you got to trudge through there. So you got to be, be careful of that. But here, you know, this king was just dead set against the God of Israel. And uh, the point of prayer is not to use God to secure our happiness or our welfare. That's not why we pray. Uh, we need to seek God's glory above everything else. I mean, he may be glorified, frankly, from delivering you from that trial. That'd be wonderful. Um, or he, he may be glorified by making you endure the trial. Or frankly, he may be glorified in bringing you home. Just taking you home to be with him. Who knows? But we need to trust him by casting our anxiety on him, submitting to whatever may bring him glory. And God allows trials to motivate us to strengthen our defenses against evil and to increase our trust in him. Thirdly, God allows trials to enrich our experience of his salvation. To enrich our experience of his salvation. Um, you know, there's something about trials that makes our walk and our relationship with God even sweeter. If you know the God who's allowing the trial to happen uh, in your life, then you understand, that, hey, you know what? He wants this for your good. And uh, you think about Israel that night, um, you know, at verse, uh, verse 22. Um, it says, uh, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib king of Assyria and from the hand of all his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. And this was just an ex one of those experiences. And I'm sure that, you know, when Israel went to bed that night, and the king Sennacherib and his army was getting ready to invade, 
They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know the angel was going to come and wipe them all out. They didn't know if they'd have to fight. They didn't know if some of the, the loved ones and family members would lose their lives by this vicious king that was coming. I mean, they've done the best they could to prepare, but their trust was ultimately in the Lord. I mean, can you imagine on the brink of an annihilation surrounded by 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and the next morning they wake up, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by 185,000 corpses <laughs> of Assyrian soldiers. Like, what happened? I mean, what, a, what an incredible thing. I mean, can you imagine the relief and the joy that must have spread throughout that city that morning? Have you heard the good news? We don't have to go to war. God rescued us. He wiped them out. We don't know what happened. We're not told how they died. We don't, we don't know anything. It's just the angel wiped them out. I think one reason many, especially those reared in, in Christian homes, okay, have a, what I would call kind of a lukewarm faith, and they're not really that grateful to God, is that they've never really had the experience of going through something horrible, <laughs> Uh, to really have God rescue them from something that was horrible. And I think we have to be aware of that. You know, that, that even though you don't, you know, we all have different upbringings, we all have different experiences, things like that. But there's some people that have just gone through some horrible experiences. I, I watched something the other day on the Internet. It was uh, about some, some, uh, some family, and they had like, I don't know, 18 kids or something, and this, the girl, she was 18, and she escaped from the house. She had never been out of her house. Just, I was like, I was like, I only watched the first part of it because I didn't have time to watch the rest of it. It's a whole series on there. But, I mean, this beautiful girl, this young girl, she's 18 years old. She's never talked to anybody outside of her family. And so it, it played in this video clip the clip of her uh, 911 call because she had an older brother and apparently her brother had a phone or something and somehow she got the phone that he had thrown out and she went outside and she just dialed 911. Apparently she wasn't totally uneducated, but she could, she could hardly communicate. And the, the dispatcher answered and they're like, yeah, well, you know, 911, can we help you, you know? Uh, I, I need help, you know. And she's hesitant to even tell them because she hasn't trusted anybody else ever with this. And she said, I'm just in fear for my family. You know, my parents are kind of crazy. Um, and the, the dispatcher's keeping her on the phone. She's like, well, where are you? You know, I don't know. Well, are you out on the street? I'm on a, I'm on a street. I guess it's a street. Or are you on a corner? I don't know. Well, do you see any signs? Um, there's a, a sign that says stop. Never saw a stop sign before. I mean, just I, it's hard to believe, right? And, and the dispatcher walks through her, and, and they're trying to find where, where she's at. And they knew that if she hung up, they'd never be able to get a hold of her because it was, I guess the phone was uh, disconnected or something, but it could call out. It couldn't receive calls. Yeah, so... It was just a weird situation, but she went on to tell how, yeah, they, my, my, my two sisters are chained up, and, you know, and, and she goes, um, well, are you harmed? She goes, I don't know. I, um, you, she said she hadn't had a bath in over a year. 
just crazy stuff, right? I mean, and so finally the officer, this whole story comes out. And I'm thinking, well, you know, somebody who goes through something like that needs to understand there's a God who loves and cares for you, right? Because if anyone needs saved from their life experience, it's somebody like that. And sometimes when we grow up in a real sweet Christian family home, we, we don't understand that kind of suffering. And so we just, you know, we grew up going to church, and yeah, it's just what we do kind of a thing. Um, and we have to be, be careful of that. Uh, because a lot of times people are saved from such a horrible background. They're so thankful to God, and you can tell it in their lives. They're so intent and growing in their faith. And those who have been raised in the church are kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, I've been doing this since I was knee high. So we have to be careful with that. Um, there was a guy who wrote a book called Recovering the Christian Mind. And he, he said this. He said, what is the experience of conversion like? Is it like opening a book one day and saying, ah, now I understand. In future, I shall guide my life by these precepts. It is not, he says. If the men and women of true faith are to be trusted, the relief felt after conversion is the relief of someone who has been saved from drowning, spotted struggling in the sea, winched up on a helicopter and laid panting there. The convert does not speak as though he had achieved something, mastered some difficult truth at last, solved some problem, attained some new insight. He speaks as one torn from the bowels of destruction by the watchful, the care, and the unspeakable love of our Savior. His emotions are, the, are of relief, of gratitude, and complete self-commitment to the one to whom he owes everything. I mean, can you imagine somebody being plucked out of an ocean by a Coast Guard and they get them up in the thing like, oh, well, that was great, man. I'm glad I saved myself. I mean, <laughs> they'd probably throw them back in the old sea, right? I mean, boy, what an ungrateful person. But some people, when they're saved, that's how they treat God. They really do. It shows in their priorities. It shows in the way we spend our time. It shows in a lot of different things. Our, pro our problem, basically, is that our proud, fallen nature makes us think that some how we're capable of handling things by ourselves when we're not. Whether it's getting into heaven by our own goodness or dealing with trials by our own ingenuity or our own creativity or whatever, our own just perseverance. And so what does God have to do? God has to humble us to make us despair even of life. As the Apostle Paul put it, in 2 Corinthians 1.9, so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Then when he delivers us, we rejoice in his salvation. See, God allows us trials in our lives to motivate us to strengthen our defenses against evil, to increase our trust in him, to enrich our experience of his salvation. And then lastly here, God allows trials to humble us under his mighty hand. See, the major sin that we all deal with, if we're honest, is pride. It's pride. It's reared its head in even good men like King Hezekiah here in our text. When he gave no return when the Lord healed him from his terminal illness. He just thought, well, yeah, I deserve to be healed. Verse 25. Later, when some of the, the Babylonian envoys came to inquire of the miraculous sign God had performed of making the shadow go backwards on the stairs rather than bearing witness 
of the great God who did such a great thing, Hezekiah boastfully showed them all his riches. He couldn't even talk about it. If a good man like Hezekiah fell into pride, none of us are exempt from the problem. God has to send trials into our lives to remind us that even good people are not essentially good. We're not. When trials hit a good person, we're inclined to ask, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why does he make man suffer like this? And we begin to think that good people have some sort of claim on God due to their goodness. But we need to remember that when we talk about a good person, we're only talking about it from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective. Because only God is truly good. That's what the Bible says. I mean, God's perspective, Romans 3, 10 to 12. Right? There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's, there's not even one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. They've become together useless. There is none, no, no one who does good. There's not even one. Wow, that's a pretty strong mandate against our goodness. When I start thinking that God owes me a trouble-free, carefree life because of my own goodness, we, we need to stop and start thinking differently. God owes me nothing but hell for my sin and eternal judgment and wrath. That's all he owes me. I mean, the question, how, God, can you allow this to happen to me? That's the wrong question. The right question is, God, why have you not blotted me off the face of the earth for my sins? Even though in the sight of men, maybe I'm a good person, in your holy presence, I'm, I'm full of complete uncleanness and deserve only your judgment. That's the truth. That's a healthy and helpful reminder. It humbles our pride. God allows us trials to remind us that even good people are not essentially good. We all need his grace, or we would rightfully perish. None can demand his blessing as a wage that is due to us. So in summary, God allows trials to bless sinners who cast themselves on him. God allows trials to bless sinners who cast themselves on him. Trials motivate us to strengthen our defense against evil. They increase our trust in God. They enrich our experience of, of his salvation. And they humble us before him, making us appreciate his abundant grace. I mean, maybe in your life you've received a, a strange, what you would consider a strange reward for your obedience to God. Maybe somebody like Sennacherib has invaded your life. And God is asking, will you trust him? That in, in, in his time, if not in this life, then in eternity, he will work all these things out for good. Uh, that's what Romans points to. If you cast yourself on him, if you submit to his sovereign hand, he will use these trials in our lives to shape you into the image of his son. That's the whole purpose of them. Hebrews 5.8 tells us it's through those things that we, we've learned obedience and, and that through the things that he suffered. Why are we so different? Um, so let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Father, we thank you that you gave us the example of King Hezekiah. Thank you that he... he 
showed himself faithful to you in every way, and yet even someone is faithfully strong and, and, and someone who loved you as much as he did and wanted to serve you, still fell, still had an issue with pride, even though he, he did repent. But Lord, so many times when you bless us, we, we begin to really believe that it's all about us, <laughs> that somehow we deserve your blessing. And Father, we, we, we don't want to have that kind of attitude before you because, Lord, we know that anything that comes into our lives is from your sovereign hand, whether it be trials or blessing. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would prepare us, help us to continue to prepare ourselves spiritually for whatever may lie ahead, whether it's trial or blessing. And, Lord, that our hearts would be stayed upon you and that we would stay true to the, the truth that God... If we know you and we have turned from our sin to the Savior and you have saved us, Lord, that we are one of your children and nothing happens in our lives that's out of your purview, that, Lord, you see all that goes on. And and some of it, um, you know, is hard, but you allow it and you allow it for a purpose. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to help us to embrace that truth. And I pray that if there's any here even tonight, that have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, that, Lord, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.